This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. This is a closer look at St. Louis-based writer and journalist Sarah Kenzia. She started her career at the New York Daily News, then she got her Ph.D. in anthropology, studying authoritarian states in the former Soviet Union. Back in St. Louis, she wrote a series of essays on the economic problems in the heartland that she collected into an e-book, but after the 2016 election, the view from flyover country dispatches from the forgotten America was noticed published and became a New York Times bestseller, which could be because she had predicted nearly all of the developments of the 2018 election, Trump's win, and what has occurred since. She joins me now for a closer look. You didn't set out to write a book, and you didn't expect your collection of essays to become a guide for those struggling to understand what happened to our country in 2016. So how did it happen? And are you surprised by the reaction to your writing? Um, Well, I ended up writing these essays between 2012 and 2014 um, on the collapse of uh, institutions in the U.S., the collapse of social trust, and, of course, uh, the collapse of the economy. I was writing about what I know, and I live in St. Louis, um, a place that never recovered from the effects of the recession. And I felt a lot of issues were not being uh, covered in depth, like labor exploitation, credentialism, uh, opportunity hoarding by elites. And so I wanted to take those on. The election of Trump was said to be about the forgotten people in middle America. Who are they really? In your book, you write that you object to the cliched view of the Midwest as just angry white people. Yeah, I don't think that um, the forgotten people, per se, applies to the stereotype of a Trump voter, um, you know, or for that matter, a white older man who works in manufacturing or agricultural industries. That's generally the prototype uh, that's put forward. I think the majority everyday Americans forgotten by political elites. I think the majority have been denied opportunity, uh, and this is not a new crisis. This is something that was building steadily basically since the Reagan era, but really um, kind of, you know, became further uh, worsened after the 2008 crash. And at that point, you did start to see geographic income inequality. You saw certain cities like New York or San Francisco or D.C. become these very expensive places to live uh, that also offered very prestigious jobs in influential industries, whereas places like where I live in St. Louis became bottomed out. They're affordable, but hard to find a good full-time job with benefits. And so, yes, you know, there is that sense um, of the Midwest as being, quote-unquote, forgotten, uh, but we who live here still remember. Um, And one last thing is that, you know, the Midwest does suffer disproportionately, but that suffering is shared by people who voted for Trump and by people who didn't. But on the whole, uh, it is basically just white people who voted for Trump. In April, the unemployment rate 
fell to 3.6%, the lowest since 1969. You say if you're 35 or younger and quite often older, you live in the post-employment economy. It isn't that there are no jobs, it's that jobs aren't paying. America is becoming a nation of zero-opportunity employers. Could you explain this? Yes. Uh, sadly, I wrote that, I believe, in 2013, and it still holds up. The unemployment statistic, you know, of low unemployment, which is there during uh, Obama's administration, there during Trump's, I think is very misleading. It doesn't account for underemployment. It doesn't count for temporary, uh, you know, gig jobs, side hustles, the kind of work that most people of my generation uh, or younger, you know, basically at this point, people 40, you know, or, or younger than that, have had to have. Um, you know, people tend to move from job to job, often working multiple jobs at once, just to make enough to be able to get by. You know, the idea of a career path, which now requires much more uh, credentials than it did in the past and much more expensive credentials, often uh, causing individuals to take on a massive amount of debt just to be able to participate in the job market. You know, that's a new thing. That's not something that previous generations have had to contend with. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately, what's happened is people kind of became uh, used to this, their expectations of what uh, employers should offer um, or, you know, what kind of aspirations they've had in life or change. Survival became the aspiration of my generation, uh, and that's a very sad thing to see. Recently, titans of finance like Ray Dalio, Jamie Dimon, uh, and the treasurer of Citibank have sounded alarms that they're all concerned about increasing inequality. What are they worried about, and why do you think they're finally speaking out? Um, well, <laughs> you should ask them, but my guess is they're worried that people will actually greater rights, uh, push for greater autonomy, uh, not settle, you know, in the way, um, you know, that I talked about previously with these managed expectations formed uh, in the post-recession economy. You know, when you have economic inequality that is this great, that exceeds uh, the Gilded Age, for example, you have political instability. And of course, we see that political instability playing out in a number of different ways across the political spectrum now in the U.S. Based on your studies of autocracies, what is it that eventually stops them or turns the tide back to democracy? It's a difficult uh, question to answer because there's a lot of variety. Um, you know, in the late 80s, of course, we saw the collapse of the Soviet Union and the collapse of the Warsaw Pact countries, uh, you know, in terms of the hold uh, that the USSR had over them. We saw a reunited Germany. Uh, and generally speaking, this was a peaceful process. It was the result of decades of activism. Uh, for example, Solidarność uh, in Poland and similar movements, um, as well as basically the decline of the autocracies from within. And people demand for more. Um, in other cases, you will see violence. You will see world war. Um, you know, that's what ultimately caused, you know, Hitler uh, and the Nazis uh, to be defeated. It's, it's difficult in some ways to look at the past to figure out where we're going now, because so much has changed in terms of digital communication, in terms of things like social media that spread propaganda so rapidly and caused people to organize in different ways. Um, and here you'll see 
see, you know, people organizing both for fascism uh, and against it. So in some sense, I feel like we've we've entered a new era, you know, an era um, like the effect is probably even greater than the first printing of the Gutenberg Bible. I think the digital era is something new. Uh, it's brought with it new problems. It will continue to bring new problems. And I think the solutions to it um, are going to be impacted that by that as well, which makes things difficult to predict. What's your most positive prediction for the country's future? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, one thing that I've, I guess I've liked seeing, though I wish the circumstances were different, is the emergence of a more engaged, uh, informed citizenry. I think people began to recognize their rights as they lost them. And that's a terrible way for people to get the kind of basic education and civics that schools apparently stopped giving long ago. Um, but we need to know that. We need to become better acquainted with our history. We need to become better acquainted with our laws so that we recognize when officials are violating them. And so when we re so we'll recognize what our own rights are um, when people try to take them away. And so I've seen that. Um, I've seen a great deal of compassion and outreach uh, towards the most vulnerable in this country. Has anything changed for the better for people in St. Louis or other Rust Belt cities with the heartland since? Um, I mean, not in the last few years. You know, it's hard to say, because I think the crisis that we're facing, especially with an administration that has deviated so enormously um, from past administrations, uh, you know, we're kind of in a new arena, and, you know, we in St. Louis are, are coping with those problems as well. Uh, I don't think the economy has changed for the better. I think, um, you know, a lot of manufacturing jobs actually have gone away. That's not necessarily just because of Trump. Uh, we have the problem of automation, which is a serious problem, uh, you know, throughout the country. But especially here, um, we've also had a rise, you know, in hate crimes and in violence here as well. I mean, we're living in a time of extreme political turbulence and a fair amount of economic turbulence as well. I don't necessarily see us moving um, in, in a good direction anytime soon. I think it's possible we might eventually, um, but it's not something I see on the immediate horizon. I talked to many CEOs and government leaders about the inequality in America and better education for the new economy jobs seems to be a common answer to the problem. You write that higher education is itself a rigged game. What do you mean by that? Yes. Uh the cost of higher education has skyrocketed, uh, especially over the last two decades, making it out of reach for the average American. And at the same time, jobs that used to not require a BA, um, you know, like office work jobs, secretarial jobs, um, you know, and other jobs as well, now do, making it basically you are penalized uh, if you do not get that degree. Uh, people have little choice in the matter. And this kind of purchased merit, this overemphasis on credentialism, I think is locking a lot of people um, you know, out of the job market. And in more prestigious industries, uh, they tend to be very concerned with where you went to school, You know, not what your abilities are, not what your skills are, not what you've learned, even if it can be uh, demonstrated objectively, but just the branding, you know, the name value of saying so-and-so went to Harvard 
Harvard. And so you end up uh, often with kind of scions of wealthy families who could afford um, those expensive degrees, who maybe had nepotistic connections to help them get in, being preferred for these jobs over other well-qualified applicants who simply could not purchase the credentials. And I think that that's a real travesty. It's just not good, uh, you know, for the body public as a whole, you know, both because people are denied opportunities, but also because we're not necessarily seeing, uh, you know, the best and brightest rise to positions um, of power and influence where they could be beneficial for society as a whole. In your essay, The Peril of Hipster Economics, you tell a story about North Philadelphia that illustrates what passes for urban development. Please tell that story and what you mean by hipster economics. Yeah, I wrote that back in 2014, where uh, basically an artist was trying to cover up urban blight, um, you know, so that people who were going on the train through the city would just see her artistic work instead of the decayed buildings um, and the poverty that was behind it. And so there's this mindset, uh, you know, that you often see uh, during the process of gentrification that focuses more on aesthetics than people, that in fact treats people as aesthetics. So somebody, you know, who is going through their life, uh, who is impoverished, who is suffering, is just treated as somebody who's inconvenient for wealthier people to look at. She's a St. Louis-based journalist a scholar of authoritarian states, an op-ed columnist for the Globe and Mail, and she was named by foreign policy as one of the 100 people you should be following on Twitter to make sense of global events. She's also the best-selling author of A View from Flyover Country, Dispatches from the Forgotten America, and co-host of the popular podcast, Gaslit Nation. Sarah Kenziar, thanks for joining us. By the way, if you have comments about the show or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, one word. This is A Closer Look with Arthur Levitt.